0: Where were you on 9-11? Terry Tempest Williams was in Washington, D.C.
1: We were told by a security guard that the Twin Towers had been bombed, and the White House looked to be next. We were right across from the White House. He said, run. None of us moved.
0: Phil Borges has traveled to some of the world's most remote spots to photograph indigenous people whose ways of life are being threatened he realized there was something they could teach the rest of us.
2: I mean, they're PhDs of their part of the land. They know things that our scientists don't know.
0: And today in Berlin, Peter Wortsman notices a difference between his neighbors depending on which side of the wall they were raised.
3: They grew up with very different expectations about the future, a different ideology, a different sense of history, and their place in history and their place in society.
0: Stay with us in the hour ahead as we consider many forms of beauty in a broken world. It's Travel with Rick Steves. For a city that's endured more than its share of dreadful history, Berlin sure is resilient. Coming up today on Travel with Rick Steves, playwright Peter Vortzmann returns to explain how change is one of the constants that keeps Berlin energized and interesting. We'll also check in shortly with author Terry Tempest-Williams. She'll tell us how learning the art of making a mosaic in Italy helped her to cope with the emotional effects of 9-11. Her soul-searching continued in post-genocide Rwanda, where she witnessed incredible acts of beauty in the midst of a broken world. Let's start today with photographer Phil Borges. Phil specializes in respectful, even dignified portrait studies that document the lives and faces of indigenous people from a variety of cultures all around the world. He joins us right now to tell us how the camera can give people a voice and what people in even the most remote corners of this planet can teach the rest of us. Phil Borges, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Rick. Now, Phil, it's amazing the initiatives you've got involved in uh, with your camera as your tool. Talk about the different projects you've had as a photographer.
2: You know, in the beginning I just wanted to go out and go to these places, first of all, and document the people. And as I was doing that, I couldn't help but notice the issues they faced. Either governments, like in the case of Tibet, governments taking over. I did some projects down in the Ecuadorian Amazon where the oil spills were causing the tribal people to move further and further back into the
0: the forest. You mentioned that double the Exxon spill was right there in that river valley or something. That's right, Incredible. exactly. And there is a fallout that people who don't have much of a voice have to endure and have as no a, voice. Uh, yeah, and as a travel photographer, you can bring that to light. Talk about The Gift.
2: They approached me. It's an organization out of Stanford called Interplast that did cleft palate surgery around the world, and it called to me in several ways. I, You know, I was an orthodontist at one time, and I did several cleft palate patients, and I just liked the way they went about their work. So I documented their work in Vietnam and in Peru, but they did it all over the world
0: and Women Empowered.
2: Yes. So I've been doing this over the last 15 to 20 years now, and the major human rights issue that I see that is almost in every culture, and it's endemic to the culture, it isn't imposed from without, it's in the traditions, and, and, and this is the oppression and discrimination against women and girls. I, I've been doing this for the last eight years now. And putting same, all my work towards that
0: For issue. the last eight years. And at the same time, there's a huge understanding just recently, it's almost trendy in developmental work, that if you want to get anything done, entrust it to the women in these communities in the that, developing world. Yes, that's right. They're the responsible ones. They're the nurturing ones. They're the ones that will take care of the infrastructure.
2: The infrastructure being their kids. They'll put their money into the right. education and health care of their kids. An educated girl will have fewer and healthier babies. And so, all, yes, all the development agencies realize this now, and that's where they put their money and their efforts.
0: I know that you have a passion and an ongoing interest just in indigenous and tribal cultures. What's the situation now? There's 6,000 languages on the planet, and half of them have no children speaking that language.
2: That means that in a generation, half our the cultural languages. diversity will be half. When, when the language goes away, the culture goes away. There's no green piece to protect uh, endangered cultures, are there? Yeah, it's kind of a silent extinction that's
0: going on. Every and, two weeks, the language goes extinct. That's right. 25 a year. That's right. We're well-established. There's no question about our culture. But a lot of these cultures don't go out very elegantly or very... Uh, I mean, people can, can struggle to keep their language going and uh, fight. Yeah, You know, we. I, I was raised thinking Ethan Allen and Patrick Henry and Nathan Hale were just like like the ultimate. But there are Ethan Allens and Patrick Henrys in these dying cultures.
2: Oh, yes. There are people that are in many ways trying to save their cultures can in you, any in, way they can. In
0: your work, have you encountered any of these? I, I always yeah, think if you I, can, I, if you I can guess... see them, you can be inspired by them.
2: Yeah, Moy comes to mind. Moy is a Rwani tribesman down in the Ecuadorian Amazon, and that's the area where all the oil drilling was going on, and the Rwani were known as the fierce ones of the tribal groups in that area. So he would
0: be a charismatic leader that would inspire his people to struggle against great odds?
2: That's right. So I met Moy down there, and he brought me—I was doing a project on shamanism at the time— And he brought me in to meet his grandfather, Mengatui. So Moy learned some Spanish, and that's how he became a leader of his people. And I actually have met him at the U.N. doing talks at the U.N. since I had him as a guide down there. So he's very much in that realm of trying to save his people.
0: So what are the enemies or who are the enemies that threaten these indigenous and tribal cultures all across the planet. What is it that's causing them to go away?
2: People want their resources. So it's struggle for
0: resources.
2: The struggle for resources. Pushed
0: by governments and corporations. That's
2: right. Yeah, that's pretty much it. I mean, And climate change, is that uh, Well, yes, of course, all of us are responsible for that, and that's playing out all over the country. You know, our consumption of drugs in this country, look how it plays out in Mexico and now in Honduras and Guatemala and it plays out in the rural areas.
0: So yeah. that would threaten very fragile little indigenous communities. Yes. Like aerial poisoning of of uh, foliage. That's right. It's part of the drug war in South America. Yeah. How does the, that hurt people?
2: Well, I I didn't even know about it going on when I was first down there and I was doing a film for the Discovery Channel. I was hosting this program on shamanism mm-hmm. and I went into the Ecuadorian Amazon. And we were met at the airport by these reporters, and they said, what do you think about your, your country's war on drugs and how it's playing out here in the Amazon? I said, I said, what's happening? He said, they're spraying thousands of acres of land out there to kill the cocoa plants.
0: And there happened and, to be tribespeople underneath that, the, oh, yeah. that foliage that I are saw, being killed also.
2: I saw little girls with their arms burnt from the chemicals. Their gardens were completely devastated. They live off those gardens, and and this is going on down there.
0: This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Phil Borges. Phil's written a number of books that are just inspirational to gain an empathy for indigenous and tribal cultures all around the world. His latest book is Tibet, Culture on the Edge. If you want to learn more about Phil's work, it's philborges.com. Phil, it's very important, as we talked about, when you are getting into these remote areas to be accepted by the people. You use a Polaroid camera and show them Polaroid images and let them know this is fun and it's not threatening or whatever. I saw a picture of you dressed very local in the Amazon, wearing less than a loincloth. <laughs> Tell me about that. And, and oh, did that help you get close to the people or was it just uh, a lot of fun? <laughs>
2: um There was an occasion where we were doing a film down in the Amazon, and we had landed in Quito, and all the volcanoes blew up the night we landed, so the rest of the crew hadn't come in. So a sound man and I went out with a camera, and we went to an area where there were these, um, not shaman, but curanderos. They had been trained by shaman, and we found a guy on the street, and we said, hey, do you go to a curandero? And he said, sure, I do. And what happens? And he said, well, I get Olympia. Well, if we go with you and we'll pay for it, will you do Olympia? So we followed him to the—
0: What's Olympia? uh,
2: Olympia's a cleansing. Okay. And so we went and followed him to the guy's house, David— And he took a look at me, and he took a look at uh, this kid that we had gotten, and he pointed to me, he said, you're the one that needs the Olympia. (laughs) So he had me stripped down, he took, and went through a bunch of chanting, this is all on film that played on the Discovery Channel. He took out some stinging nettles and whipped me all over with stinging nettles, and then We were supposed to bring 100-proof alcohol to him, and he took the alcohol in his mouth and held out a candle, and he blew these flame balls all over me, burnt all the hair off my arms, burnt my eyebrows. (laughs) Is that the one you saw?
0: (laughs) No, well, that sounds a pretty good way to go local, I'll tell you. But what you've done is you've immersed yourself in these different cultures, and it's easy to think of shamans blowing fireballs all over you and kind of think, you know, this is pretty uh, out there. But there's some fundamental wisdom we can pick up in our travels also from very um, traditional and ancient societies that could be, um, I think, um, belittled or underestimated in our fast-paced modern computerized world. What's an example of some fundamental wisdom you've picked up in your work as a travel photographer that we can all maybe learn from? Yeah, I pick it up all the time. First of all, it's their
2: connection to the land. I mean, they're PhDs of their part of the land. They know things that our scientists don't know and their spiritual connection to the land. And we say, okay, this is superstitious. They're praying to the mountain gods or the gods of the rivers, the gods of the forest. No, it's a metaphor. They are connected to those those elements in a way that we have lost. And that connection makes them believe in our interdependence, in our interconnectedness, and how we are so dependent on all forms of life and on each other. So it it hits them at a very deep spiritual level. So So that's
0: related to this Tibetan Buddhist notion of the sentient beings? Yes, yes. What does that mean, sentient beings?
2: A sentient being to a a Tibetan, I believe, means anything that has the life force within it. It could be a snail. It could be an amoeba. But Uh, we're connected in one way or another. But we are all dependent.
0: Interdependence as a recipe for well-being and happiness that's right and sustainability as well yeah a very poignant and uh, timely issue today when we We, look around the world
2: that's right sustainability is what we're all faced with right now are we going to be able to sustain our lifestyle sustain this much economic growth and what is important to us in our happiness and And over the last
0: 25 years you've been exploring these different indigenous and tribal cultures written many books had many projects what would the overriding theme be the overriding theme for me is
2: just that getting back to that connection of Mother Earth.
0: Phil Burgess, your work is an inspiration. Thank you very much, and best wishes with whatever's next. Thanks so much, Rick.
2: When there is doubt, there is hope.
3: A dance a dance a dance of peace
0: Terry Tempest-Williams makes a return appearance to travel with Rick Steves in just a moment to share how learning the ancient art of mosaics in Italy taught her to look for beauty in a broken world. Stay with us. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by the European Union Delegation to the USA. Tips about traveling in Europe and information about the EU are available at euintheus.org. Author and activist Terry Tempest Williams is best known for her connection to the people and the landscapes of her native Utah. Her writing explores the region's human and natural histories and argues passionately for the preservation of its threatened ecosystems and species. Her writing weaves together themes of family, of spirituality, and of nature. But in the wake of 9-11, this daughter of the American Southwest felt compelled to actually leave her home and travel abroad in search of solace. Terry Tempest william joins us today to talk about the book that came out of that personal adventure called Finding Beauty in a Broken World. Terry, thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you so much, Rick.
0: How did 9/11 hit you as a as a writer and as a as a seeker and 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 why were you inspired to travel after
1: 9/11? It was a turning point for me, as I'm sure it's a marked moment for all Americans. I happened to be in Washington D.C. on 9/11. On September 11th. I think if I had been home in Castle Valley, Utah, I wouldn't have known what had happened. I probably would have noticed there were no contrail signs in the sky, no planes. But I was at the Corcoran Gallery with other photographers and writers. We were about to begin a press conference with an exhibit called In Response to Place when we were told by a security guard that the Twin Towers had been bombed and that the Pentagon had been hit and the White House looked to be next. We were right across from the White House. He said, run. None of us moved. He came back five minutes later and said, run. We ran outside. We saw the black plume coming up from the Pentagon. We saw people running across the White House lawn. The next thing I remember, seven of us were inside a cab. He turned around in total gridlock and said, and just where would you like to go?
0: <laughs> just where would you, and what did you, th- what did you think? I want to get out of here.
1: You know, I stayed and I happened to be on book tour at that time with a book called Red, Passion and Patience in the Desert. I had the choice of returning to Utah. I, I saw it as an opportunity to really listen to what was going on in America. And as you remember, it was changing day by day. Right. I heard myself saying, speaking out, um, when I was hearing Congress and senators alike saying, it's not a matter of if we're going to drill in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, but when I heard myself saying, There are many forms of terrorism, and environmental degradation is one of those. I think the thing that scared me, Rick, is that after a year of really defending what I called the open space of democracy and public lands, that there was more to be talked about than just oil and gas and war.
0: So this has been sort of a whiplash for me. We're talking about uh, the attacks on New York City and the Pentagon, and you're thinking uh, environmental challenges and sort of... uh, terrorism to our environment. Uh, Talk a little more about that. Because
1: it was tied to oil and gas, because it was tied to Iraq and the potential of war, because already members of Congress were saying, we need oil and we need to drill in wild areas. And you could see the rhetoric change that if you spoke against that, then suddenly you were not a patriot. And that was very frightening to me as a writer who's been very concerned with free speech coming out of Utah, where free speech... uh, Is not always a given. I was sensitive to that. But what was frightening to me is after a year of this, I heard my own rhetoric as brittle as those that I was opposing. I had lost my sense of poetry, and polemics are not persuasive. I was in Maine. You talk about travel. I was on the coast. It was high tide. I stood on the edge of this continent, and I remember saying prayers Give me one wild word, and I promise I will follow. And I stood there for a long time, and the word that came into my heart was mosaic. And I thought, that is not the word I was looking for. You know, now am I relegated to a life of breaking my mother's dishes and making bad picture frames. But I took that seriously. And what I thought was a craft, I learned was an art, the art of assemblage, of taking that which is broken and creating something whole, something beautiful.
0: So you went to Italy.
1: I did go to Italy. I went to Ravenna. I enrolled in a school of mosaic. Again, my ignorance, I thought it was a craft course. I didn't realize this was a highly sophisticated art class with conservators and artists from all over the world. I was quickly identified as a dunce, and Luciana set me in the corner with a hammer and a hardy, and (laughs) for three weeks I was relegated to breaking stone.
0: Terry Tempest Williams, the great writer, <laughs> author of Finding Beauty in a Broken World, When Women Were Birds, Refuge, and Unnatural History of Family and Place, in the corner wearing a dunce hat, breaking <laughs> stones for mosaics in Ravenna. Whoa, surrounded by... She l- wouldn't
1: let me touch them. What a, just a, what a great way.
0: experience for you to have that sort of a role for a little while, uh, surrounded it by all that so, great art and history.
1: It was so great to get out of my head and to just make tessera, square cubes of marble and stone for three weeks and hand them to the conservators and artists who were restoring these great mm. mosaics in Ravenna. If you've been there and I know you have, you know, they're jewel boxes, right? Oh, from they're the jewel bo- Byzantine. I was gonna era. ask
0: these are churches that go way back to the time when Jesus didn't wear a beard. I mean that was late <laughs> Roman Empire. Jesus only got his beard in the Middle Ages. <laughs> and then you go into these churches and you see these sublime, sumptuous works of art made from little broken chips of stone and, and colored glass and so on. And there you were as a rank beginner, surrounded by all that wonder and history. Talk on. Tell me more. What happened? What did you learn from the Mosaic experience?
1: It was life-changing. You know, there were rules to Mosaic. If you want to create a horizontal line, you stack, you line Tessera vertically. If you want to create a vertical line, you place Tessera horizontally. The first and last rule of Mosaic is light. I love one of the rules is there is perfection in imperfection.
0: And I understand you you angle the the little stones at different angles so the light bounces off them in a lively way. Is that part of it?
1: Exactly. And this, you know, as you mentioned, we're in churches and these specks of gold would create light in in very dark places, um, mm. not just to celebrate God and. Spirit, but to literally bring forth light in a
0: dark world just, to bring forth light. It's exactly. And then this notion of imperfection. I was talking with a mosaic maker in a Muslim society, and they mm-hmm. intentionally made their mosaics imperfect as a respect for God, who only God is perfect. And it's just a, a beautiful sort of notion and a, a humble approach to God, isn't it? Beautiful. I love now, that. Did, were you, Terry? Did you go into the? the great churches there that go back 1,500 years, and were you inspired by the mosaics that you saw? What was that like for you?
1: I think I spent most of my time in Ravenna on my back, literally just staring up, not at stars, but at those mosaic ceilings that told stories where you'd see Apollo, the sun god, who then was transformed into the son of God. You could see the whole history of Christianity in stone, I absolutely fell in love with them.
0: And you're you're such a, a Utah tree hugger, and your whole world is <laughs> prairie dogs and, and beautiful birds in <laughs> Great Salt Lake. So I can see you having that kind of passion for nature, but then you have that same passion, and you're laying on your back looking at mosaics in Ravenna, Italy, marveling at culture.
1: Rick, I had my binoculars. I oh. could birdwatch those <laughs> ceilings. You can birdwatch, you know,
0: exactly. There are the actual birds. There were
1: birds. doves, there were ibises, you know, blackbirds... I mean, it's a naturalist delight. Plants, palms. I was in heaven. In fact, my husband really was afraid that he had lost me forever. As I said, it was it was like being, you know, encased in a jewel box of of time and history. I just loved it, and I loved my teacher. She was terrifying. In the end, she did let me create a mosaic on the premise that <laughs> there is perfection and imperfection, and mine was more than imperfect. It now hangs proudly in our bathroom, and every oh, time someone goes into our bathroom, you hear them laughing, and you <laughs> know why.
0: You know, I, I've got in my bathroom, actually it wasn't my bathroom, now it's in my office, <laughs> I've got a little um, a fresco that I made, also in Italy. Really? And it's just a very crude fresco, but I got to do it myself, just like you did it yourself, and humble. And doesn't and, it and, make
1: you appreciate the process? I
0: love knowing the process, having gotten my fingers dirty with it. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Terry Tempest Williams, and she's well known for her beautiful books, Finding Beauty in a Broken World, Refuge, in a Natural History of Family and Place, her latest book When Women Were Birds. We're talking specifically now about Terry's uh, sharing her experience after 9/11 in her book Finding Beauty in a Broken World and the um, time to have introspection and and look at the world in a new way and figure out what does it all mean. Inspired Terry to travel. She went to Italy to Ravenna to make mosaics. And, Terry, you also went to Rwanda, and you talk about that in the book, too. Tell us about Rwanda, of all places. Why did you go there, and and how did that relate to your search during this period?
1: I did not want to go to Rwanda. My brother had just passed away. Um, our family is all too familiar with death from cancer. Um, a friend of mine, Lily Yeh, who is a mosaicist out of Philadelphia, we had met, and she helped to create the Village of Arts and Humanity in Philly and uh, she was going to Rwanda and she was creating a team. Long story shorter, she had been to an arts conference, she had heard a man from Rwanda Red Cross talk about the Rwandan genocide, 1994, in a matter of three months, almost a million Tutsis and moderate Hutus had been murdered by neighbors by hand, machetes hose, etc. She was so taken by it that she went up and, and basically said, four words, how can I help? He said, come to Rwanda and you will know what to do. She went to Rwanda. She went into the village of genocide survivors, largely women, who had lost everything and everyone. She listened. And what she heard to her horror is that the bones of their beloved, their children, were held in cloth behind their beds, behind trees, dug in the most rudimentary fashion so that they could cling to those bones. They had not had a proper burial. Together, they created a design of a memorial where they could bury the bones of their beloved in a respectful, dignified manner. Lily said, I will come back with a team. She needed a scribe. She asked if I would come. I said no. She never took her eyes off of me. I realized my spiritual growth was dependent on my saying yes, and I heard myself say those words, and it was true, Rick. What I learned is that finding beauty in a broken world is creating beauty in the world we find. Um, I can hardly talk about it.
0: Finding beauty in a broken world is creating beauty in the world we
1: find. Yes. And what I could never have understood is that in a place like Rwanda, where every square inch of that landscape has been bled on and bled over, that beauty is not optional. But I saw the women's eyes, death eyes, eyes turned inward, completely light up when their children began painting their homes, when they began making mosaics on this beautiful memorial that would house Mm. their families who had died. What I saw is that beauty is not optional, but a strategy for survival. I could never have known, Rick, that in that question, give me one wild word, and the word that came to me was mosaic, that three years later I would find myself literally making mosaics in a genocide memorial out of the broken shards of war, literally the rubble of war. It changed my life, you know. I, I had no idea, and every single day I am mindful of, of the sorrow and the joy, the resiliency of the human spirit that people hold,
0: you know, people are not inclined. It's not a natural inclination for for us to look and experience the dark side of humanity by, by going there. Would you recommend that people go to places like the Rwandas of this world? I mean, you don't have to go to Rwanda, but there's lots of opportunities that way, aren't there, that, that are lost opportunities?
1: The thing that struck me is, you know, we have everything in this country. We have so much. We're so privileged. And yet there's so much discontent. People are not mm-hmm. happy. And so you see this mad, consumptive, reactive quality. What I saw in Rwanda over and over again, and I've been back many times, is that there is a joy that is encased in the sorrow, but there is a meaningfulness. There is a capacity to share, as you say, a capacity to empathize, a capacity to work together. And Rwanda is now working toward restoration and reconciliation. And I have so much respect for that. I think the happiest times I have had in my life have been in Rwanda, working together, mm. um, not with Hutus and Tutsis, but Rwandans. And again, it's finding meaning in our lives, that idea that taking that which is broken and creating something whole together.
0: Terry, the sadness for me is that the average person in our society just changes the channel and, and watches more TV. I mean, life goes right by you. If you don't get on a plane or get in a canoe or put on some shoes and go out there and embrace the world, find beauty in a broken world, make beauty in the world you're given.
1: And it doesn't have to be in Rwanda, no, it, 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 it as doesn't. you say. it's You're in Washington. <laughs> I'm in Utah. Both of us are deeply committed to these places, and uh, I think that's what real advocacy and Communitarianism is don't you
0: advocacy now there's a difference between charity and advocacy, isn't there? Have you thought much about that?
1: How interesting, how so?
0: I just think charity is is almost like okay, I got to do some charity. Advocacy is empathizing with people, understanding their baggage, to go there and to walk with them, to talk with them, to understand what have their struggles been, and uh, you go to Rwanda, you have empathy, you understand their baggage Americas. Really good at knowing what nine eleven baggage is, but other people have baggage that's just as powerful. Imagine the baggage in Rwanda
1: that's what undid me. I remember we were able to go into the Gachacha courts where perpetrators, people who had murdered family members, had to face those members who of the family survived oh. and and tell them what had happened. ask for their forgiveness and in one instance, I heard a woman say to a man who had murdered her husband and all of her children, she stood before him and she said, I know who you are. I saw what you did. You murdered my husband and children. I now live alone. And then she said, But I now forgive you, and I will make you my son, and I would ask that you come to live with me, and we will take care of each other.
0: Finding Beauty in a Broken World gaining power and strength from from brokenness.
1: That's right, and it's not to romanticize poverty, certainly, Mm -hmm. or war, but I think it's perspective. And what I realized in Rwanda with this, you know, I don't even have the language, the, the horrors that took place there, what I realized is that on one hand, angels, on the other hand, demons, good, evil, how do we bring our hands together in prayer? and that if a human being is capable of this kind of atrocity, then I, too, am capable of that. And if a human being is capable of this kind of forgiveness, then I, too, am capable of that. And I think it brought me into a a much deeper sense of my own humanity. And perhaps that's the gift of travel.
0: Terry Tempest-Williams, author of Finding Beauty in a Broken World, author of When Women Were Birds, and Refuge, An Unnatural History of Family and Place, thank you so much for what you do and for sharing it with us today on this show.
1: And thank you, Rick, for your perceptions and how you allow us to travel with grace. Let's talk again soon. Thank you.
0: Terry Tempest-Williams is an admired author and naturalist whose subjects often include her native Utah. Her most recent book is a tribute to a mystery her mother left behind after her death. The book's called When Women Were Birds, 54 Variations on Voice. Terry shares more of her insights online at coyoteclan.com. Don't forget, you can always listen again to any of our guests and find program extras in the radio section at ricksteves.com. We also have a list of radio stations that air Travel with Rick Steves around the country with their local airtimes and links to their audio streams. Up next, playwright Peter Vortzmann's back to tell us more about Berlin and how that city's amazing history contributes to its energetic pulse today. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. It's Travel with Rick Steves.
2: My name is Elisabeth Van Es, and I'm from the Netherlands. And I'm going to mention
0: one of our tongue twisters. It says, "Moeder snijdt zeven scheversnede brood. That means, Mother cuts seven crooked slices of bread. Moeder snijdt zeven scheef- brood. <laughs> That's so good. Uh-huh. Berlin is so dynamic, it's essentially a different city today than it was less than a generation ago. American playwright and author Peter Voitsman likes Berlin so much he made it his second home. And as we discovered when Peter first joined us a couple months ago on Travel with Rick Steves, he's a particularly perceptive observer when it comes to what lies beneath the surface in his adopted second city. Peter's book about Berlin and his encounters with its haunted history is called Ghost Dance in Berlin: A Rhapsody in Grey. Peter Voitsman, it's good to have you back. Oh, well, thank you, Rick. Peter, in your book about Berlin, you write of the city's ever-evolving identity, and you sum it up with one word, forward.
3: Well, I, I think of Berlin, and, and I mentioned this in the book, as a not a proper noun but as a verb. It keeps Berlining into something else. It starts as this little backwater up in Brandenburg, Prussian backwater, becomes the capital first of a kingdom, then of an empire, Then the empire falls, and it becomes the capital of this brief fever dream of modernity of the Weimar Republic. Alas, the Weimar Republic collapses. It becomes then the so-called Thousand-Year Reichstadt, capital of the Third Reich. Fortunately, that collapses. Then it's invaded, destroyed. It becomes this rubble heap at the fault line of history, this divided rubble heap. A wall goes up in the midst of it. It becomes two cities. And then in 1989, the wall comes down and it becomes one wild, anarchic, spirited
0: city. Just to hear you review that is, is breathtaking. And, I just, and to get a chance to go there with a little bit of historical background and, and a good guide and a little bit of time and curiosity to piece this all together, you write that Berlin is built on a heap of urban impulses. Berlin is a phoenix forever being reborn. And then you talk about Nefertiti, of all people. Nefertiti (laughs) is that (laughs) Egyptian statue of an incredible woman who uh, goes back, what, 4,000 years. And Nefertiti is right there in the uh, museum island, in the center of the town, kind of looking out over it all. Well, it's one of the most beautiful statues ever in art history. But when you think of Nefertiti, you're also thinking of Berlin's tumultuous story and, at the same time, its stability and its power to survive. Give us the the context. Why did you bring Nefertiti into the book, and, and what does that have to do with anything?
3: She is the kind of symbol of... Look, every museum is a kind of rubble heap of stolen objects from the world. We love our museums, but after all, they're the products of empire, as is the Metropolitan Museum in New York or the Louvre or the great museums on Museum Insel in Berlin. These are the souvenirs of empire. Often, one empire annexes... The souvenirs of another. And here you had the Prussians annexing uh, the great queen of Egypt and somewhere uh, <laughs> borrowing or stealing her spirit. They had their pyramids. The East Germans had their Fernsehturm, their TV tower, which was supposed to be the symbol of their future thinking society that, of course, then collapsed.
0: And then you've got the big, uh, what was the emperor's residence, which is now a big grassy uh, expanse between the TV Tower and Nefertiti, which was a big symbol of empire during Prussian times, wasn't it?
3: It was a, a huge symbol of empire, and the allied bombs damaged it, but it was not completely destroyed. It was the East German state that decided to tear it down because it was, for them, a retrograde reactionary symbol, and they didn't want it there.
0: But from there, you've got the rubble of the Third Reich and and Hitler's dreams of... Wasn't he going to rename Berlin Germania or something like this?
3: He did re- rename it Germania. He thought this was going to last forever. He wanted it to be the center. He was very envious of Paris, by the way, which he wanted to become then the the German center of Europe. But Berlin was to be the great capital, the great symbol. The most telling thing for me was I have a good friend, Grisha Meyer whose mother was German, father was Russian. Grisha told me the story how his mother, as a young girl, she was an art student. Her art teacher told her one day, we're going to visit an exhibit. We won't talk about it when we get there. We'll never talk about it afterwards, but it will be the one time in your life that you will ever see real art. And that, of course, was Joseph Goebbels' exhibit of Entartete Kunst, Degenerate Art, which was a collection of Chagall, Picasso, the German expressionists, all the art that was taboo and forbidden. But the fact is, three times as many Berliners and Germans visited that exhibit than visited the official German art exhibit that nobody really gave a damn about. Wait a minute. During Nazi times,
0: they actually showed off the forbidden art? Oh, yes. But they showed it off as an example of bad art?
3: They showed it off as a kind of a freak show. Yeah. uh, As a kind of a... You see, this is what happens to... Culture, when degenerates take over, when uh, Jews take over when when artists uh, who can't see right cubists take over, and we want to clean up that mess, but the message didn 't get across
0: well, people knew what the truth was, so parents were taking their kids and saying, "Pay attention, this may be the last time you see real art because we 're living under this Nazi hell yes. Wow. yes, now, when you go to Germany over the years, you see this this whole theme that we're talking about, ever-evolving Berlin. For instance, Potsdamer Platz in the 1920s. That was like the Times Square of Europe.
3: And the site of the first traffic light in all of Europe. It's still uh, recreated uh, symbolically there.
0: But then during the war, I mean, after the war, of course, you have the Berlin Wall going right through it. They'd shoot you if you walked across that Platz.
3: Right through it. But today it's the site of the great German film museum, with Marlene Dietrich's uh, oh, former that's right. wardrobe... Marlene Dietrich's the... right there. It's like in your face. The secular saint of the Film Museum of Berlin with her wardrobe as close as relics as you can get. And this is a huge towering office part, sort of a celebration of
0: capitalism after the end of the Cold War, and almost like scalps hanging outside of Boonesboro, you've got little, <laughs> little <laughs> chunks of the Berlin Wall out there covered with graffiti just little finger sandwiches of the Berlin Wall uh, out for people to gawk at and, and mock and take pictures of. It's a, once again this fascinating, ever-evolving Berlin.
1: Dürr wird das Gras Glück ist wie Glas Und es zerbricht
2: Wie wir
0: I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm talking with Peter Wurtzman. Peter's written a fascinating book based on his experience as an American Jew with German Jewish heritage looking back at the greatest city of of the German people, Ghost Dance in Berlin. Peter, you also talk in a fascinating way about Alexanderplatz. Talk about the importance of Alexanderplatz to the people of Berlin and and how it has evolved over
3: the years. Can I read you a couple of lines about uh, Alexanderplatz? Please do. Berliners fondly call it Alex, for short, like it was an old friend with a familiar pudgy, pockmarked face, a perennial beer buzz, and a couple of front teeth missing. That mangy mug has undergone multiple facelifts over the years, and given the prodigious bulge of its cheeks and the various pockets or forecourts it encompasses, it is hard to say just where Alex ends and the rest of Berlin begins, and in a sense it hardly matters. Since Alex is as much a state of mind as a precise locale. There's nothing beautiful about it. In fact, it's really rather ugly as far as urban spaces go compared to the great monumental squares of Paris, London and Rome. But Alexanderplatz is positively electric. Pure current, unmediated by wires, rumbling with arriving and departing underground and above-ground trains, trams, taxis, buses, clip-clopping with boots. It's not a place to linger for long.
0: Peter, that is perfect Alexanderplatz. And as you read that, I was thinking uh, over my lifetime, my visits to this square, you know, when Berlin was divided, Potsdamer Platz was cut in half and the city needed a new central square. And my understanding is Alexanderplatz was the central square of eastern Berlin in the shadow of that TV tower. And uh, it was pretty much the best they could do, but almost laughable as far as an advanced modern place, but it was, it was the best the DDR could do. And today, it's got that ugly aliveness, uh, and I just ended up thinking, I want to get a beer and sit here and watch people, and it was a, it was sort of like punk Berlin in a, in a way that was just constantly entertaining, never the same, and it just is a, a living example of how Berlin is this ever-evolving, amazing city.
3: And you have that weird phenomenon of the grill walkers, these young guys with portable ovens wrapped around their middles with bratwursts sizzling on it, and you're just dying to eat this stuff. You come out of the subway, and there they are, these human grill walkers parading their wares. This is Travel
0: with Rick Steves. We're talking with Peter Wurtzman. Peter's book is Ghost Dance in Berlin. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Rick is calling in from Henderson, Nevada. Rick, thanks for your call.
2: Hi, Rick. Thanks for taking my call. Uh, And Peter, I and my wife are taking our two daughters, 21 and 18, and our son, who's 15, on a two-week trip to Germany. And uh, that'll be their first time in Europe, and I I know that Berlin is going to be an exciting part of our trip. Is there anything you could recommend for people of that age, the youth, that we could experience in the two short days we have there?
3: Well, inevitably, they're going to be grabbed by the the Stasi Museum, the museum of the former East German Secret Service. Uh, It's a creepier side of Berlin, but they will be grabbed by it. You can also visit underground Berlin on a tour, going through some of the former bunkers that were there during the Third Reich period. I would strongly, however, suggest they also go to some of the very deeply moving memorials. There's the Jewish Museum, which tells the history of the relationship between those two cultures. There's the memorial to the murdered Jews of Europe. But you know what? The other side of Berlin it's it has more park space than any city of Europe. You can go into the Tiergarten. The zoo is terrific, Zoologischer Garten. You've got to go to some of the museums on Museum Insel and, and do uh, give a hug to Nefertiti. Yeah. <laughs> I,
0: you know, I agree. The Museum Island is an amazing uh, collection of four or five world-class museums. And as we speak, they are coordinating it all together with one admission ticket and it's just really spiffed up in a in a beautiful way as as Berlin continues to knit itself back together. You know, Peter and uh, Rick, one thing I would highly recommend is the uh, river tour down the Spree River. Uh, it used to be such a ugly, people-unfriendly place, but now they've uh, really fixed up the river that goes right through the center of town. Of course, in the old days, they had barbed wire there, and if you swam across it, they'd shoot you. And now it's a park with grass, and they even set up beaches, fake beaches in the summer where they bring in sand Something else I'd recommend is, if your kids are interested in 20th century history, is the Third Reich Walk. There's all sorts of walking tours in Berlin that are very competitive. I think the the walk about the Third Reich brings that to life. And there's the movie museum in the Potsdamer Platz, isn't there?
3: Oh, it's great. The history of, of German cinema. We don't realize to what extent our American cinema was profoundly influenced by German cinema, and specifically the emigres that fled the Nazis. I'm talking about Fritz Lang, uh, Ernst Lubitsch, uh, Billy Wilder. These are the greats. And this was the heart and soul of their cinema, the great silence of Dr. Mabuse, Metropolis. You'll see uh, recreations and remnants there. And and the top of the collection is the wardrobe of Marlene Dietrich, the Venus of uh, Weimar Republic. Mm. Enjoy that, Rick. Yeah. and. and- Good for you, that Rick, for great. taking taking your, your family. It'll be a,
0: a powerful experience for your teenage kids. I think that'll be great.
2: Well, I know two days won't do it
3: justice, but uh, we're going to try.
0: It's a good start. Good luck on your trip. Thanks.
3: Thanks, thanks very Bye-bye. much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
0: I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Peter Wurtzman. Peter's book is Ghost Dance in Berlin. Peter, Berlin is such a complicated city, and it is woven back together again physically, but you still have a little bit of... Leftover from the days when it was divided. You've got Aussies and Vessies, right? The, the people who raised in the East and the people who were raised in the West. What are the roots of their differences and how will we see that today?
3: Well, they grew up with very different expectations about the future, a different ideology, a different sense of, of history and their place in history and their place in society. Some Aussies of 60s or older became profoundly disillusioned people their dreams uh, disappeared, life becomes too expensive, they they can't afford it. And others rolled with the punches. Uh, friends that I have from over there, they were not disillusioned at all with the fall of the totalitarian state. They were disillusioned that some of the ideals were not preserved and were just uh, bulldozed through.
0: Yeah, you see that even today, there's the, the sort of the defense of the... Uh Apple mention right? Just as a symbol of a few of the good things about DDR in eastern Berlin, they still keep the the jaunty uh, streetlights up from the communist times. And the older people really are considered the lost generation, and the younger people were able to flex with the times and embrace the capitalist ways. But that is quite a a traumatic adjustment, especially for the older generation.
3: What was amazing to me, I visited uh, the East back in 86, and, of course, at a time when no one ever thought the wall was going to come down, and it comes down in a mere three years. And I remember going to a bookstore and people telling me when a book comes out, it was treated like a rock concert in East Germany. People would line three times around the block because they knew that it would be a short print run and mm. it wouldn't be available the next day. So people adored books, and I'm attached to books myself.
0: It's an amazing story for Berlin. Peter, we've been talking all about the complicated and tumultuous history of Berlin and everything, but it's also one of the most creative and affordable and young and happening and and vibrant places you can go in Europe. Of course, in the evening, you want to have a good dinner. Let's finish our talk about Berlin off with you, just taking us to what you think would be a very memorable Berlin dinner.
3: I'm taking you to dinner with all of the contradictions of my palate and my my gut and my soul. I am the child of uh, Jewish refugees from Vienna who was raised to know all of the taboos and the pleasure of indulging in all of the taboos and now I need to take you to one of the most delicious of the taboos. Dear mother of mine, forgive me. Father's insatiable appetite for the forbidden flesh calls out to me from the hereafter, here and now in Berlin, with all the gastric contradictions of totem and taboo, whenever I see Eisbein, ham hock on the menu. No foodstuff better exemplifies the German craving and the Jewish prescription for me than this quintessential Berlin dish, a veritable mountain of pork, comprising the joint between the tibia fibula and the metatarsals, the tender, fragrant, fat, and fleshy part of the monster, joining knee and hip, or elbow joint and foot. A positively Neanderthal spectacle on the plate. It's a dish that stirs up mixed emotions when ordered in a restaurant. Befuddlement on the part of foreign tourists. Did you see what he ordered? Who try to imagine just what it is and how in heaven's name it fits on a plate utter disgust on the part of avowed vegetarians for whom it constitutes a blatant in-your-face affront, the very incarnation of meat, and awe on the part of repressed cholesterol-conscious carnivores who themselves would not dare go to such extremes in public to satisfy their lust, secretly considering the pornographic craving best indulged in private. The disbelief of my fellow diners is palpable as I dig in, Picture the culinary, metaphoric equivalent of highbrow opera buffs compelled to witness a wrestling match. It is indeed a sloppy, slippery task to slice through the blubber of the poached Berlin version.
0: Whoa, a Jewish ode <laughs> to a ham hock. Peter Wortsman, du bist ein Berliner. You, <laughs> l- clearly, you love Berlin and the ham hocks that come with it. Peter, thanks so much for sharing your insight into this complicated and fascinating city. Thanks so much. Thank you, Rick. Okay, good Reise.
2: Adieu.
0: Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick and Isaac Kaplan-Wolner. Thanks to Michael Havy at KUER Salt Lake City and to our colleagues at the Radio Foundation in New York for their help this week. There's more online in the radio department at ricksteves.com. That's where you can listen again to any week's show, post your comments on what you hear, and send us your own original travel haiku. And we'll look for you again next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by the European Union Delegation to the USA. The European Union received the 2012 Nobel Peace Prize for promoting peace, human rights, and democracy. Information available at euintheus.org. Each year, Rick Steves Tour Guides take free-spirited travelers on escorted tours all over Europe, one small group at a time.
2: This year, we're featuring tours of Germany, Austria and Switzerland, Berlin, Prague and Vienna, and the heart of Belgium and Holland. For a free catalog and Rick's Tour Experience DVD, visit the tour pages at ricksteves.com.